You are listening to Climate Now. I'm James Lawler. And I'm Catherine Gorman. Today, we're going to be talking about preparing for climate change from a business perspective. There's no longer any doubt that the climate is changing and that this change is going to have a financial impact on us, whether it's the cost of preventing it from getting worse or the cost of dealing with the consequences. So the question is, what can businesses do to understand how climate change is going to impact their bottom line? And how can businesses clearly demonstrate the commitment to mitigating the climate crisis to the public and to investors? Exactly. We are joined today by Emily Wasley, who heads the Corporate Climate Risk Adaptation and Resilience Program at WSP USA. She's going to be walking us through a relatively new tool for businesses to quantify and report their risk to their stakeholders. The tool is a set of recommendations created by the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD. Emily, thank you so much for being here. We'd love to start by learning a little bit about climate risk consulting. So what is WSP and what is the climate risk adaptation and resilience program that you lead there? Thank you. So happy to be here. So WSP is a global engineering and infrastructure design consultancy. So we have offices and staff all around the world. We have different regions. So I work for WSP USA, there's WSP Canada, WSP South Africa, South America. So we all coordinate as WSP Global, but we do have these regional focus areas. Within WSP, um, we have a kind of boutique consultancy called the Climate Resilience and Sustainability Group. And then within that is the corporate work that we do. And so when I joined WSP in in November 2019, uh, we were at about 34 people for our consultancy for sustainability and resilience. And since then, we are now over 100 people on our team. And that has been driven primarily by the interest in corporations in wanting to improve their sustainability, reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, invest in energy efficiency, renewable energies, and really understand what is it that can help a company and business and the host community where they live and work um, really enhance their resilience to the physical impacts of climate change. So the practice that I lead is most primarily focused on publicly traded, privately held Fortune 50s to Fortune 500 companies who are really interested in aligning with the task force and climate-related financial disclosures and really diving deeper into what are the asset-level um, investments or retrogrades, retrofits that are needed to be made to really withstand the, the extreme impacts of climate change, both on a chronic level, such as sea level rise, higher temperatures, but also on a more acute level with extreme weather events. Okay. Let's now define what is the TCFD, first of all. The TCFD stands for the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. So TCFD was formed in 2015, and it was really driven by the Financial Stability Board, the G20 FSB, leading up to the Paris Agreement. So Michael Carney, formerly with Bank of England, and Michael Bloomberg, formerly mayor of New York City, formed this task force with about 30 other members from insurance companies, from banks, asset owners, asset managers. So they brought these folks together, formed this task force to really develop a core framework for companies to use to identify, assess, and disclose climate-related financial impacts. So um, it was driven by 
you know, everything going on with the Paris Agreement, the understanding that businesses need to play a role and can play a role and are also significantly impacted by the risks associated with climate change when it comes to the physical impacts, but also uh, transitioning to a low carbon economy and what that looks like, what that means, how can they do that equitably, how can they do that effectively and efficiently, and if they do that too quickly and the infrastructure is not there to support their goals and their commitments, what risks do they, what does risks that pose to their costs and their bottom line? And when investors say, we want you to align with the TCFD framework, that means they want the companies to have gone through the scenario analysis to assess what their risks are, have an understanding of how those risks impact their business, their strategy, their financial portfolio, and then disclosing that to their investors and shareholders so they can adequately price those risks. Amazing. And so let, let's dig into the actual reporting of the TCFD. How does that how does that work? Is it actually a report that you submit? Is it a series of checkups? What actually goes on? <laughs> it really ranges based on what your investors want to see, what your shareholders want to see, and what you as a company want to disclose when it comes to the level of detail and, and where. Investors want to see these disclosures embedded into their financial filing. So if there's a company that has billions of dollars of climate-related financial risks, they expect to see climate change noted in their 10K filing. And forgive my ignorance, a 10K is what your, your disclosure that you're filing with the federal government, yes? The SEC. Yep. The SEC, yep. got it. Okay, yeah. great. A lot of times our clients will come to us and say, hey, we need to align with TCFD. How do we do that? And so one of my first questions is, okay, have you noted climate change as a, as a material risk in your 10K? If yes, that's a great start. You need to back that up with some evidence and some scenario analysis to confirm that that is in fact material to you. So we kind of work backwards there. So sometimes it's in the 10K, other times it's in their environmental social governance report. They can put it into their financial filings, uh, their annual financial report. Other times they have a standalone report. So right now it's not very consistent. I'm hoping that when the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission comes out with their guidance soon, that there will be more standardized reporting processes and guidance from that. So there's all sorts of ways you can follow these rules. And it seems sort of like it's a hodgepodge and like how you actually do it. Just like sort of make sure you're getting it done kind of. But who are these rules for? Does it broadly apply? Are they sort of blanket and that they apply in the same way to all industries and all markets? Or are there different recommendations of regulations given what sector you're in? So TCFD was, is a voluntary framework. So it's not mandatory in the United States. Some other countries have definitely been coming out in the forefront. France, for example, Canada have all kind of said, okay, you need to have mandatory reporting in the next two years so that companies and banks can get up to speed and get their act together. So it's still voluntary. And that's, I think, why you're seeing kind of a hodgepodge of different reporting. There's no real consistency. If it was a regulation, then you would see much more um, consistency through that. But the task force really was intended for the financial sector first. So banks, insurance companies, asset managers, asset owners, and then they also identified non-financial industries. So energy, transportation, markets and buildings, and then ag and the food sector. So those are the four that are primarily 
significant in terms of their emissions, as well as the potential physical impacts to their business operations. And so Emily, I'd, I'd love to have you expound for us a little bit on the key recommendations of the TCFD. What are they actually hoping that, <laughs> that these uh, non-binding regulations will do? Are there metrics and targets or is it just please demonstrate that you even care about this a little bit? So Catherine, that's a great question. And the TCFD is broken down into four core elements and those four are governance, strategy, risk management and measures and targets. And within each of those components are the disclosures and the recommended disclosures. So when we say, what is a TCFD recommendation? It's the recommended disclosure content. So let's start with governance. Investor wanna see that at the board level, the board is being informed of and overseeing anything related to climate change. So that's GHG emission reduction targets. If you're investing in energy efficiency measures, if you're retrofitting a a building or your operational processes, then how is that going to be impacted by climate change and how is that going to reduce the emissions? So they want the board to be involved in those discussions and having those discussions at the board level. They also want at the management level, and it, you know, that is kind of subject to the company's discretion, but generally it's at the C-suite level. So um, the CFO, the COO, CEO to have a clear distinction on how they're assessing and disclosing those risks and opportunities related to climate change. And then that process is then informing the board. So there are two disclosures under the governance section. There are three under strategy and strategy is a little bit more tricky because when you think of strategy, you think what's the strategy to manage these risks, right? That's not what they're thinking about. This is instead, what is the climate change risk and opportunity lens of how the business strategy will be impacted. So what they're really looking at is that you're conducting either a qualitative and or quantitative financial analysis, thinking forward into the future about how climate change um, is going to impact the business strategy, the financial portfolio, and any sort of other businesses that are managed within that portfolio. So that's the strategy piece. So it's also has a component on how resilient is your business strategy to a changing climate, to a more sustainable future? And can you withstand the impacts of climate change over time? So Emily, can I just, just to jump in, I know we've only covered two of the four, but it prompts a question for me, which is, you know, these, these recommendations seem to be fairly soft in that it seems as though if you have a plan by which your board or your C-suite are talking about these issues. And if you if you sort of nod to the fact that from a business strategy standpoint, you're thinking about this, then you're meeting the recommendation. Or do you have to do more than that? What would be maybe an example of a, you know, you don't have to give any names, but of a company that does this really well and like, what do they do to, to abide or to follow those recommendations? So an example client that we work with um, is in the IT sector and, you know, they own and operate data centers around the world. So data centers use a lot of water for cooling. They use a lot of energy and are generally um, no region now is safe from a climate hazard. So given that we have been working with this, com this company and client for over 20 years, which is 
wonderful because we've been able to really dive deep into the way that they run their business, how they operate, how they're more sustainable. So what they have set up is they have a climate risk and resilience lead who then reports to a climate council. And that climate council is where the president sits. And that climate council then reports to the board. That is the process. And what investors want to see is that process described in their annual reporting. There's a whole bunch of, you know, different ways to report out. But what investors want to see is that you have a process in place and that you're disclosing that process and that it's connecting the management level with the board level. Okay. Sorry. I pulled you off track. We were <laughs> going to move to the, the last two risk management and metrics and targets that, that are part of the recommendations. No worries. That's okay. I could dive into this all day. So I'll try to keep it at a high level. So the risk management piece. So that is really intuitive. Um, it's how you're managing the impacts of these risks on your business, um, how you're integrating climate considerations into your broader enterprise risk management process. For example, so WSB Global, our team actually does our own TCFD alignment. And so we get to do it for ourselves, which is really fun. And I was on the phone earlier with our broad enterprise risk management team. We were looking at our, our ERM risk taxonomy. And the taxonomy is basically the massive spreadsheet or tool that you use to basically track all the different risks that your company faces. And so we have climate considerations embedded into that. And so whenever they're thinking about a risk such as the, the pandemic on our staff or our offices, climate change, like heat waves during a pandemic or wildfires during a pandemic can be pretty impactful, both on our, our staff's health, but also on our productivity. And so that aligns with customer success and client deliverables. So it's, it's walking through those processes and making sure that those climate considerations are truly embedded into that enterprise risk management or ERM process. Okay, so that's the third component. And, and how does the last one work? The last component is the metrics and targets. And that's really looking at different metrics to understand how risks are changing over time. Also, you know, where your scope one, two, and three greenhouse gas emissions are, at what level, what metrics are you using to measure that progress. Um, and then the last component is really the targets that you're setting to make sure that you are achieving a more sustainable and resilient future. Are the TCFD's methods, you know, we, so background here, you know, we did some Googling and looking around at other organizations, other methodologies, other recommendations. As you said, there's kind of an alphabet soup of organizations with different recommendations, but it seems that TCFD's methods are becoming accepted as kind of the standard benchmark of recommendations for organizations to follow. And we wanted just to see if that was true. And if so, you know, why that is. It is true. TCFD is getting embedded into all sorts of other ESG frameworks. And the reason is that it has a nice connection with the financial filings, but it's also a very flexible framework for companies to undertake, to take their journey for aligning with the TCFD, and it really gets to the heart of the forward-looking scenario analysis, emerging risks, but also embedding those climate considerations into the way that they do business. Mm -hmm. and, and so I wonder if we could just go like a little bit deeper. You mentioned one example of the, the IT company and, and sort of how they're addressing the governance aspect of, of these recommendations. I wonder 
just to paint a picture for people, if you might come up with some additional, some examples of other organizations that address some of those, how they address some of the other recommendations. Sure. And it really differs by company, by um, region, and by industry. So the IT sector, I gave that example. With that same client, we have been going through a quantitative and qualitative scenario analysis process. We then work with their data center facility leads and actually interview those leads to validate our findings and understand what adaptive capacity they have. So one of the the components and definitions of adaptive capacity is their ability to prepare for, adapt to, and thrive in the face of a changing climate. Do they have plans and procedures or business continuity plans that incorporate extreme heat or intensity in hurricanes? And do they test those through tabletop exercises or full-scale exercises on a regular basis? Are they connected with their power utility provider? And are they running those exercises together? So if the grid goes down, they know how to communicate about that. So that's one component. We work with also kind of the hotels and lodging industry. We have been doing a, um, a quantitative scenario analysis for this customer and really looking at properties primarily in the U.S. for now. And then we'll go and expand internationally. Um, but what they wanted was a, a resilient scorecard. So they wanted to understand what was their inherent risk? So what's their unmitigated exposure of climate hazards? And then with that, we were going to, and are planning to um, assess their adaptive capacity through understanding and in interviewing and, and doing virtual site visits or in-person site visits if we can safely. Um, and then with that, we come up with a resilience score range. And that's uh, the purposes of that is really to provide an education to the property owners and property managers to better understand what their exposure is to which climate hazard, and then work with them to figure out what is the appropriate adaptation measure that makes sense for their location, their um, customer base, their property style to enhance the resilience of that kind of component. And are they, is that in that particular case, would that client be doing that because they want, they need to, uh, you know, um, provide, or they feel a need to provide that on the, on their 10 K filing, you know, or, you know, to satisfy investor demand, or are they doing that because, you know, they're, they genuinely want to know these things to be prepared for adverse climate events and consequences. There's a range of different reasoning behind it. And I would say all of the above, including the fact that if they are able to illustrate to their insurers that they have been able to reduce their risk through these management measures, then that is a win-win. So they want to do it for um, protecting their customers. They want to do it for protecting their reputation. Also, some of these hotels serve as disaster response centers. And so they want to make sure that they can provide that continuity of operations when time is really of the essence. So it sounds like most of these incentives are based on avoiding losses down the line as climate change worsens. But are there any shorter term motivations or more immediate benefits for your clients to produce these financial risk disclosures? So they're motivated by understanding their risks and their losses, but they're also motivated by opportunities to shape the market and to develop new products and services and to um, create more sustainable communities and more resilient communities. And I think a lot of our clients have either faced or are 
are imminently facing um, significant impacts from climate change. They're also um, getting a lot of investor requests from Black, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street. Um, the federal government now has an executive order on climate-related financial risks so that the federal government can understand what their risks and exposure are. And within that are a lot of companies providing services to the federal government. So they're part of the supply chain. So there are opportunities related to this change in dynamic and this change in the market in the shift to a lower carbon future and a more resilient and prepared world. And what about like in terms of assessing climate related risks, are you putting dollar figures around that when it comes to you know, risk to property, you're adding up sort of risk to property, risk to labor, risk to, you know, your customer base and revenue loss, or is it more of a, is it more qualitative than that? Um, so again, it depends. Yeah. It depends on where um, the company is in their journey. So if they're new to TCFD, we're going to want to start with a qualitative screening of at a portfolio level globally, here are your top climate hazards and where are those top climate hazards? How is that impacting your bottom line? How is that impacting your employees, your operations, your supply chain, your value chain? So we, we do that from a qualitative screening basis first so that they can then say, okay, we have this X amount of funding because still, you know, the uptick in demand is there, but the amount of resources being put into these types of analysis is still pretty low. So if they say, okay, we have an X amount of dollars to do a, a quantitative financial assessment. We want to focus in this region and we want to get into the weeds on the asset level, total value at risk, and really better understand that. And that is more complicated. It's also, we like to provide ranges in the values uh, because if you, you know, no one has a crystal ball and knows what the future is going to hold. We do know from scientific evidence and observational data and modeling that our climate is changing, but the intensity and the, um, the timing on that is still, there's some uncertainty there. So um, we, we definitely like to provide a range of values when it comes to the financial impact. Are those sort of quantitative um, targets becoming more important over time or are we seeing a shift in the thinking around that? Yes, many more of our clients are aligning with the science-based target initiative. Um, and that is that has been providing some guidance at various different industry scales. Um, it's still an evolving process, but in the past, there used to be targets that people would just you know, say, okay, which should our target be? Okay, we're gonna do a little back of the envelope calculation. But now that SBT is in place, they have much more rigorous guidance and methodology to actually help them determine what their target can be. And so that, that science, that science-based targets, what, can you just describe what that is? Yes. Yeah, so it's setting a emission reductions target mm-hmm. based on scientific calculations and scientific evidence. So it's really using the latest science to create that target with underlying calculations and projections and modeling. It's much more rigorous than what we had in the past. Great. So once you've made these estimates, then what do investors do with them? What, what's the data used for? It's a lot of TBD, um, mm-hmm. but a lot of the questions that we get asked is, um, can you provide me with the climate value at risk? 
And so the climate VAR, and that is a complex um, calculation and consideration because you need to understand, you know, the, the average annual losses, you need to get information from your insurance, business interruption values. So a lot of things go into that calculation, but essentially the investors want to know that you're prepared, that you are ready for this, that you have considered how climate change is going to impact your business and how you can be part of the solution. So that's my understanding of what investors are doing with the data and the information that's being disclosed. So let's think forward a bit and imagine that we begin to put more structural policies in place around mitigating climate change. So for example, when TCFD reporting or something similar becomes a national policy, how will smaller companies metabolize the costs that we'd be associated with you know, adhering to, to that? Yeah, and that is something that we are intimately aware of because of the minimal resources that smaller companies tend to have when it comes to staff available to to lead this, but also the amount of funding available. So, you know, I always like to start with what's existing, what's already in place and build from there. And so if they, if if a smaller organization is already um, understands what topics of environmental, social and governance and climate are material to them, that's a great place to start. If climate change is, then TCFD would probably be good to align with. And you can do a qualitative assessment at a high level and then you know, over time, do your more in-depth analysis. But it also depends on what industry you're in, where you're located, and where you see your emerging strategy going over time. So mm-hmm. there are a bunch of different questions that I generally start asking clients before I dive into, yes, you have to do TCFD. If you're a, a publicly traded company that has lots of resources, it's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a way, it's the way that I see it is it's, it's really managing your business resilience um, by aligning with the task force and climate-related financial disclosures. And you get so much more insight into, let's say, for example, you don't have a clear understanding of where your suppliers are or the manufacturing locations of your suppliers and you just have their headquarter location. Getting that additional information will help you with any sort of supply chain um, information that you need and understand kind of what your dependencies are on that supplier. So for smaller companies, um, we have done kind of TCFD light um, as a start and, and that is sufficient for now. As long as they have a good understanding of, you know, what their overall risks and opportunities are and and they're managing those and they can illustrate that and document that, then investors will be okay with that. Mm -hmm. So do you see emissions and tonnage of CO2 released, you know, through companies' activities as becoming sort of an integral or a necessary disclosure at any point? in the, in the future. Yes. Or in your future. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, their, their, their GHG footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, most companies have a good understanding of what that is for them. Mm-hmm. Um, generally they have to do a greenhouse gas inventory to start to really get that clear understanding of what their footprint is. So then they can manage that over time. But I do believe that any industry that is a high, high greenhouse gas emitter will need to disclose that information as well as how they're reducing those emissions. 
um, investors will absolutely want to have that so that they can make sure that they want to continue divesting or they want to continue investing in those areas. And I just mentioned divesting. One thing I did want to bring up is within the task force and climate related financial disclosures, there's really nothing about justice or equity involved included in that guidance. And so it's a separate conversation, but it's a conversation that needs to be had by the companies that are doing these analysis and disclosing this information because what we're seeing is divestments from vulnerable areas um, and that will make those vulnerable areas even more vulnerable. So we want to make sure that if there is a company that has extracted a lot of resources from a local community or has a lot of employees who work in that community, they're not just gonna pick up and leave because it's vulnerable. They're actually gonna lean in and enhance the resilience of that community uh, to give back to what it had extracted over time. Mm. So, I mean, that sounds like a very altruistic thing and a, a good thing for companies to be doing, but if it's against their financial interests, how is that, like, how does that happen? How does that get encouraged? That seems like a big problem. It's a huge problem. Uh-huh. And it's something that that is emerging in terms of areas of interest for companies. Um, it really comes down to a reputational risk. Um, and if, you know, customers have a lot of, customers and shareholders and the general public have a lot of sway when it comes to um, these days, you know, if they, they see a company that's doing harm to underserved communities or creating more inequity, they'll call them out and, you know, you can divest from those companies, but it is tricky. And uh, through the women in climate tech effort that I'm, I'm a part of, we've been developing a toolkit for the task force on equity for climate related financial disclosures. So we're looking more into this. It's an emerging effort, but we're going to be presented at climate week in New York um, in September. So Wow. More to come on that, but um, but it's definitely an area that um, is so important and so necessary to be discussing now before it gets too too far gone. What do you think it's going to take for the conversation to start to sort of naturally and without prompting include questions of justice, equity, and, and inclusion, and and making sure that we're not abandoning overly impacted communities as we start to see the the impacts happen to them first before the the rest of the world? I think it's going to require investors to demand that the transition to a low carbon economy be done equitably. And for examples of that to be highlighted, to really embed components of and centralize justice and equity into the way that uh, corporations function. So for example, if you look at the governance section of TCFD, if you can make sure that there are diverse candidates racially, um, by gender, at the board level and at the management level, um, it has been proven that more climate action can take place. There's more efficiencies, there's you know more innovative solutions. So there's a way to embed equity into the governance structure of companies that can then make them more profitable and also more efficient and effective. Well, Emily, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your expertise with us. That is it for this episode of the podcast. 
To learn more about calculating climate-related financial risks, you can check out our podcast with Tori Greaves of the Climate Service. And you can find other interviews, watch our videos, and sign up for our newsletter at climatenow.com. And if you want to get in touch, email us at contact at climatenow.com or tweet at us at we are climate now. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.